Hello, this is Ravi Chandra with the Pacific Heart Podcast and also with 36 Views of San Francisco. Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, To the Mamas and the Sistas, and I'm here with Dr. Paula Arai, who is a Buddhist scholar and author of Bringing Zen Home and other uh, uh, other works, and she'll uh, we'll have we'll be having a discussion about this poem and about the issues of uh, Buddhism and gender. So, to the mamas and the sisters, all beings are my mothers, and we don't all get along. I do group therapy in my mind, wondering how we'll all belong. I'm a Buddhist man, you see, and from the beginning, bhikkhus demanded bhikkhunis move to the back of the boat the Buddha was building. I think they were afraid of Prajapati's brilliant volition. Queen Maya, her sister, died after parturition. Her loss lingered in his sati recollections. Prajapati cultivated her boy's compassion. Sid's quest required his wife Yashodra's permission. Now the monks, you see, were seeking liberation from karma. Liberation for the boys meant separation from mama. So basically Prajapati's strength was viewed as too much drama. Buddhist cultures since then have devalued women. While praising the mother, they placed her in submission. Her beautiful heart hides a wound with hidden rants. Pray for rebirth as a man, they're taught to chant. It's your only shot at an enlightenment plan, as if they're here only to support the birth of a man. Never free of motherhood, never victorious, forced to play good. Smiles, everyone, you're on fantasy aisle. Sure, they reply, but beware our bile. Mr. Rourke, he thinks he's in charge, but these women charge for fantasy aisle smiles. They charge me with crimes of asking for affection and attention. What have you done, they ask, to deserve our redemption? What have I done for women's pain? My mind plays this GD game. But down below, my heart knows the germane. The world is suffering, my beloved's in chains. But new eyes always hold me guilty. Who is this guy? Is he just horny? They wonder what kind of man I am. They wonder what considerations I might demand. I say I'm a doctor and a lover and a failure. My, your suspicion of me and my gender is quite a derailleur. Praise to the patients for carrying their loads. Praise to the lovers who've gotten my goat. If I'm a child of all beings, praise to my mamas. If I'm a brother to all, then praise to my sisters. But please, girls, be patient, resistas. Bless my ears to hear your wisdom. Believe you this, I live in your queendom. I'll stand tall in time, but not on your back. I'll take your wisdom, and I'll take your smack. The genders are interdependent. No one's in charge. Our gifts are complementary. Our great big boat is a unisex barge. And it's a party. Believe me, it's a party. Let's call it the CW, Compassion and Wisdom. Someday we'll have an unconventional convention. First, we'll post our interbeing failure confessions. Group therapy in our mind means a love supreme for all time. We're fat, and that's my fat rhyme. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. So we were uh, we had this wonderful conversation over lunch, Paula, um, about um, gender in Buddhism, and this is where this poem came from. Uh, is this? Uh, uh, this this kind of uh, this recognition that uh, there's been a lot of sexism and patriarchy uh, in Buddhist 
uh, practices uh, and so forth. Um, but there's this uh, underlying wish, I think, for myself uh, to be uh, to to not fall into some trap uh, about that in my own mind in terms of you know how I treat women and so forth and and, and how we're related. So, but but you had some things to say about uh, the history of Buddhism and uh, uh, so forth. So yeah, yeah. why well, you should have said um, highlight my book Women Living Zen. I have spent quite many years thinking about this and researching it and I found that much of particularly Western scholarship but not just Western scholarship um, many Buddhist texts take an androcentric perspective they're looking from the male gaze and so what you get by Buddhist texts you mean the academic texts academic texts and Mm. some of the scriptures and Mm. commentaries treatises and so they're written by men much of the time and the audience is male for the most part so women it's not that all these 2500 years of Buddhist history women were not doing something and not thinking and feeling they just were not involved with the texts they had other values to um, tend to. And so when women, um, when, when you see a text that's something like, you know, you have to um, pray to be reborn as a man, well, a woman did not come up with that practice. <laughs> right. And uh, that was what the men said you must do. And we see evidence women did do that, but we also um, see where women didn't adopt the male perspective. And and the fact that women stayed in this tradition um, tells us, I would think, that women had some sense of agency and self-worth and I, I have seen in Western scholarship clear statements that basically women got a sense of liberation in the Buddhist tradition after the white upper middle class educated woman said we need liberation in the Buddhist tradition. And I have a lot of information that suggests these wonderful white middle-class educated women were not the first to recognize there are paths to liberation within the Buddhist tradition that are available to women. You don't say. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I even, in my research on Zen nuns in Japan, I asked the abbess point blank, this is in... 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked her if the Western women's movement has affected the Soto Zen nuns because the Soto Zen nuns, their history over the early um, or the end of the 1800s, um, they started. There started being a movement of the women saying, "Wait a minute, we want." 
um, more opportunities, we want more education, and then eventually they establish schools and monastic training centers for themselves. And then through the most um, publicly male chauvinistic period of Japanese history of late during World War II, um, the women, the Sotos and nuns, fought and got equal regulations in terms of the sect, the institution. So um, one scholar said that you know, this was because um, the women had gotten, in, saw the Western women, you know, winning suffrage and things, and so that's where they got it. So I asked the abbess if that was true, and she just laughed at me, and I thought, hmm, so maybe there's another history here. And so I went about researching why this abbess, highly respected in Japan, did not see that Western women influenced them. Where were these women getting this idea that they deserved to be treated um, fairly by the sect? And the first ordained Buddhists in Japan were women. And the... Oh, I didn't know that. Hmm. Back in 800... Uh, oh, 500s. 500s, okay. And that was not surprising because the head of the country we see in the 300s, um, Empress um, Himiko, when she, she was, they didn't have a distinction between secular and sacred power, as we would use those words in English today. Um, so she, when, when uh, she stepped off the throne, they tried to put a man in her place and the people rebelled because women were seen to have more power. And um, so it's not surprising then that the first ordained Buddhists are women because women were seen in this way. And it's a long story that does include Confucian influence of a would say a distorted Confucian teaching. That's another story. But um, the women did shift in their uh, access to public power, but the women have, ever since the beginning of the Buddhist tradition in Japan, have been ordaining as nuns and have held positions of power and have taught and transmitted the Dharma all the way through. And um, that's why the abbess did not think it took Western women to um, influence their behavior in asking for egalitarian regulations. So that's really interesting mm -hmm. and uh, eye-opening. Um, you'd also said something earlier about the way these rules about men and oh, women yeah. arose. Uh, I kind of put myself back in the Buddha's time and said, oh, maybe the monks at that time were afraid of the Buddha's mother coming in and, or stepmother coming in and taking over. You know, mm -hmm. so that's a, that's a way I imagined it. But you had kind of a different take that actually uh, made me feel uh, such warmth for those early Buddhists and what they were doing. Because uh, you said that they were creating a, a radical structural uh, uh, society, mm -hmm. a radical uh, counter movement mm -hmm. to society. Mm -hmm. um, that, that, in your view, uh, 
Uh, I mean, the rules about men and women didn't come in until later, so maybe even hundreds of years later or, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. they're often called the eight special rules or extra rules for women, the eight Guru Dharma, and um, they are cast as women have to do these eight special rules, like, you know, bow down to any monk. Um, even if she's been a nun for a hundred years and that's his first day as a monk that um, the highest rank of a nun is always lower than the lowest rank of a, of a man. And um, so these kinds of rules um, say, well, the, what's called the Dharma age or the degenerate Dharma age will come faster if women get ordained. And this was put in the mouth of the Buddha um, for legitimacy purposes. But the whole concept of a degenerate age or the Dharma or there being Dharma ages doesn't appear anywhere until uh, for at least 300 years after the passing of the um, historical Buddha. So, Which is when the Tripitaka was right, formalized. And, right. Okay. So all these things start happening several hundred years later. and. Um, so that's our first clue that it probably did not come out of Shakyamuni's mouth because this concept didn't exist. Um, but also when you look at the history of how the Vinaya, the rules, the monastic regulations were developed, they were developed in community. Of When an issue arose, they put it through the three different um, spheres of influence and ramifications for the practice. Um, so if you choose behavior A or B, they'd examine, okay, how does it affect the person doing the practice? Um, the second sphere is how does it affect the community if we do it this way or that way? And then also how does it affect the, envir affect the environment? Like there was early on a particular twig that I guess is really good for cleaning teeth and they had rules about just how much of it, how long it could be because they were already thinking, well, you know, if you've got a bunch of people living near one of these bushes, well, you know, you're not going to have any twigs left right. to clean your teeth. And so they regulated, okay, this is not good for the environment, not good for our teeth, so we right. will make a rule. And so... It's about how to live in their community at that time rather than this is how you get to enlightenment or something right, like that. Right, okay. right. And they were, you know, decisions made by committee. And um, so they're not linear, systematic. Yes. I don't um, think God blessed the committee, uh, but, but possibly. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah. So um, that's how the Vinaya developed. So that the, I mean, the thought that the Shakyamuni Buddha gives, you know, right off the bat eight rules um, is just, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't reflect everything else we know. And so only um, an, a perspective, an androcentric perspective that wants to maintain that the Buddhist tradition was against woman, women from the beginning would not notice this historical um, development and not notice that, gee, it probably couldn't have happened because this concept didn't exist. Um, so when you use, imagine, okay, from the women's perspective, what likely happened or what might have happened, then you start seeing a lot more 
room for women to practice as Buddhists um, and um, it wasn't it's not just a story of oppression and suffering and you know it seems like those who want to say oh women are treated so poorly in Buddhism well you know one of the basic Buddhist teachings the first noble truth for example says you know there is suffering so it's not like women uniquely suffer and or that men should make women suffer, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, which is, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, or that men in order are not, to not suffering. Suffer, right? yeah. Or men, in order to be above suffering, have to make women suffer. It's like this, yeah. it's kind of this BS that somehow, yeah. you know, it's, it's not, you know, yeah. it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, so women are navigating suffering, men navigate suffering. The issues, some are similar, some are different. Um, but when you look through the texts that are available and you imagine full people and how they might have lived with these conditions and these teachings, um, uh, it doesn't look so much like there was this consistent, active uh, force, pressure, teachings trying to denigrate women. Not that denigration didn't happen, but um, that was not the predominant um, tenor of the tradition. I'd certainly like to believe that it was radically egalitarian at that time, uh, for, especially for that time. I mean, who knows if it would pass standards for egalitarian for our time or what egalitarian means for our time because we're still working that out mm -hmm. ourselves so this is an ongoing struggle in human culture um, but uh, uh, I mean you know the fact you know, the Buddha you know anti-caste he did create uh, mm -hmm. or sanction uh, the ordaining of women and, mm -hmm. and so forth and and uh, uh, his mother stepmother did become a nun and a very mm -hmm. prominent person in early Buddhism I mean these are these are indicators at least um, uh, and, and as we were discussing um, uh, 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 you know even the the classic legend of the Buddha leaving you know mm -hmm. his household at the dead of night and abandoning his mm -hmm. wife and poor just born son I mean that's kind of come <coughs> um, later and as an overlay as well as kind of an individualistic uh, 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 take it might have even been a different legend of a different Buddha or something that that got placed on the Shakyamuni Buddha mm -hmm. and uh, so but you had some interesting things to say about about how um, uh, uh, the Buddha was kind of more in other legends was more, well, I don't know, more related to his wife, or his wife was more connected to him, and yeah. um, both of them practicing the same practices. He got permission uh, to leave from his parents and so forth, and so, so that was, um, it's a much more related view yeah. Yeah. Of, uh, of, the, of the quest uh, than, so, yeah. yeah, there's the other legend of the birth story of the Buddha that um, did, we do know, we don't see it until several hundred years after he passed. So it's clearly a self-conscious decision by a community to create a different narrative that in the end makes it so when Shakyamuni attains enlightenment, his wife Yashodara 
gives birth to their child. And so this... So she's been carrying the child metaphorically for six years right, or something. Right, but it elevates... Um, Unless he came back and had one last happy night before he... Well, you know. no, they, no, they said she got <laughs> okay. pregnant the night that he left. The night that he left, okay. Because right. that's, uh, then he's fulfilling his role as householder in the mi most minimal fashion. Okay. And so, um, but what it's saying is there were communities of people saying, well, well, well do you have to leave your home? What I mean, what, what's wrong with family? Mm -hmm. And so this is saying, yes, you can be in your home. Women can give birth to children. Mm -hmm. And that is on a par with attaining enlightenment, um, and at least narratively. And so it tells us back in, in ancient India, there were people already asking these kinds of questions because they come up with a whole different birth narrative. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Um, uh, um, I, I mean, I'd certainly like to think uh, as I, I mentioned, that, that you know, the, nowadays we have examples of parents leaving their families, leaving their children to go study, both, both fathers and mothers uh, doing this to get their professional credentials. It's very common in immigrant communities. Um, and, but the goal is to, to reunite mm -hmm. after the four years or the PhD is done or whatever, and then have uh, a connection again as a family. And I have to think, I mean, you know, my sense is the Buddha as a compassionate, caring person uh, from the beginning uh, must have had some inkling of how, you know, how this will all relate to his community, to his family. You know, so, um, so that's what I, I, I think that, you know, that his leaving, however he left the palace, whether he had permission or not, uh, or, you know, what level of, how, whether he knew how long he would be leaving for or whatever, all these questions we don't know. Um, but I think the sense was uh, uh, that, that he was looking for enlightenment and that he was going to somehow relate it to his family to help them. So he was, you know, he got his PhD or whatever, he got his enlightenment, mm -hmm. and then he came back years later mm -hmm. and he did in fact teach his family. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, so, yeah, so there's a much more interdependent and um, I think kind of egalitarian uh, consciousness uh, mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know what, um, but that's my, that's my, uh, maybe my, my, um, my wish to see uh, Buddhism, early Buddhism, as really pure. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, in all time periods, things have, there have been, some of the, currents of the ideals, and you know, also streams of a lot of dukkha or mud um, sloshing around, but um, I, I do think in all time periods, women have, there have been women who have um, faced suffering and have found some transformation. And they didn't just stay stuck and find the Buddhist teachings utterly ineffective and irrelevant to their lives and stay in the tradition for 2,500 years. That would just be to think that all women in all those years, all those cultures, are unable to think and 
have any agency and that's that's a story that is implied in a lot of the androcentric um, scholarship and the perspective that's represented in scholarship and that's that's harder to reconcile with what little we do know um, than it is to imagine that these women were sentient beings. They did know how to think and they did act and they did not just let themselves be subjugated by men. That That is a harder story to believe. Well, that's, that's uh it's very profound. I've learned so much talking to you all all uh, afternoon. Um, I guess you know the other uh, the other pieces. You know, in a sense, I, I want to say, who cares what they did twenty five hundred years ago? I mean, it's it's uh, uh, you know, it's who are we now? Yeah. And how do we want to live our lives? And what is our path out of suffering? Buddhism offers some great tools and and motivation and inspiration. But, uh, but uh, the other poem I, I, I uh, sent to you was, you know, I think the Buddha arises in our inner minds, in our inner lives, mm-hmm. but also in our relationships. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so uh, I think, you know, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the, the next Buddha will be a Sangha, the Sangha. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, ultimately uh, that Buddha is about our relationships with each mm-hmm. other, which is always being created. Mm-hmm. It's never something that's solidified, uh, we'll always have to keep cultivating it and working on it. And um, so thank you for, for helping me cultivate uh, a moment of Sangha and a moment of Buddha <laughs> between us. Uh, uh, so I appreciate that. Oh, I, as well. Thank right. you, Robbie. Thank you. So uh, actually, I'm back now with Paula Arai. And uh, uh, there's something interesting came up after we... Uh, uh, stop the last piece of recording um, but there's this idea that I've been you know thinking about that that first that human beings are kind of the most curiously self brainwashing creatures uh, out there and that 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 you really have to think and you really have to uh, explore deeply because otherwise you can get trapped in some story um, that is not actually true. You can have a narrative laid down on you, or you can have a uh, an interpretation of a story. And actually, there there's a whole mosaic of interpretations that can come out of a story. But the question still is, who are you as a person? So, so yeah, I mean, you know, because we we're talking about these stories, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, this, this strikes me as, you know, a, a way that we can gaslight ourselves. Oh well. If this is what the story says, then this is what I must do. This is the brainwashing mm-hmm. uh, part mm-hmm. that we do to ourselves, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you... Yeah. Well, but so the story that I had been yeah. recounting was in relation to this concept that women pr- do a practice to pray to be reborn as a female, because mm-hmm. um, you can't become Buddha as male. And the Buddha had actually explicitly stated, don't kind of believe anything written or test it out for yourself because if it's about stopping suffering you need to experience it yourself it's not there's no some some external authority that can tell you and I think women have known this all along um, and yes. so even what if the men said it they didn't necessarily believe it but there are 
women who have practiced They this. must have had an early word for mansplaining <laughs> at that time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, you know, this practice of thinking you have to become, um, be reborn as a male to enter the Pure Land um, or be a Buddha. Um, there was a story I was told of a, man, a rich man who was dying and doing the Pure Land practice of meditating and you know when if you have an equanimous mind then the pure land Amida Buddha may come down from the pure land and if you have this good death you can be reborn there and um, this story was characterized to me that a woman one of his many wives had come in during the ritual upset that he um, did not leave her and their son any money even though he had lots of it and so he attended to changing his will. She got her money, but then the story goes on to say he was all upset and then didn't have one of these equanimous deaths. And the person explaining to me said, well, um, implied that this is the woman's fault. And um, as a scholar looking at that, I thought... Because someone's got to be to, to blame, especially the woman. Right? Yeah, especially the woman. Right. And so it has to be this sinister influence. And I said, well, is that really what the text says? Is that really the story? Um, and it's in Chinese, I didn't know, but I just thought, no, this sounds like an, an overlay of, a, of an androcentric perspective that is probably not inherent in the story. And indeed, this person went and looked it up and found that it was about um, the moral um, omission of taking care of people that um, he can afford to care for and that he has an obligation to in a sense because wife and child and that that was the reason he didn't have the equanimous death but I thought how quickly a person was trying to retell the story making it the woman's fault well this that brings up the question um you know, I think we, especially in the West, I feel like, you know, our culture is, is only, in America, only a few hundred years old. So maybe this is part of our still primitivity is that there's so much fault finding in, in our culture right now. It's like, who's at fault? Who did me wrong? Mm -hmm. And, uh, oh, if you hadn't done that, then I would have been okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have been, you know. And, you know, it's, we all we have to take responsibility as a culture and, and as people. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that, that that kind of pin the tail on the donkey, who's to blame, uh, who's, who's the donkey now, and, and so forth, we, we, we just, um, uh, it, 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 keeps, it keeps something, it keeps us from, from progressing in some yeah. way. I mean, so, it's, so that, that's just uh, another addition is like, how can we get beyond uh, to a deeper story, like your story, like this, you know, this deeper story of the, the moral of, of what we are as human beings, how related we are to each other, uh, uh, rather than uh, reading our story as simply about a, a, a blame game, a fault-finding yeah. mission. So. Well, and I do think when you look at the history of the world, like if, you know, if you were studying for the SAT and didn't know the word individual, you would come up with saying it means, you know, something that can't be divided. Right. And so uh, through history, 
starting around in the 1600s, that word individual started shifting from being a person who's not dividable to being a person who's separate. And we see that along with, you know, Descartes coming along and um, dividing the mind and body. And so there has been a lot of fracturing happening in the last several hundred years in Western concepts. Um, and I do think we are coming around with integrative medicine and what we're finding um, through all different sorts of collaborative research that we really are interconnected. And so we're, there is kind of a wholeness in, we are seeing that wholeness maybe is the foundation and we spent a lot of time dissecting and separating and fragmenting as in Western civilization, and I think we're coming back around. Well, I hope that there's a synthesis between these ideas because I think there there is something that's uh, that is valuable in you know the categorization of parts and so forth. There's something valuable about that, uh, and there's something valuable about finding your individual identity and narrative in life. But there is something deeply uh, important about our connections to each other, how we change each other. I mean, we're, yeah. we're all changing in some way under the current political environment, and uh, that's demonstration of how, how yeah. this connection is important. But we're also defining ourselves as individuals against this backdrop, too. So yeah. it's like all things are happening. So, yeah. uh, But I think, I think this... Uh, this idea uh, of a holistic synthesis of uh, uh, of uh, what 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 uh, what would you say uh, the uh, uh, what concept would you call that the individual or the the uh, what an individual really means to not be divided yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, to be yeah. Uh, complete um, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so I sometimes think in musical metaphors where it's like we can be these distinct pitches, these distinct notes, and we have our own qualities, you know, we're 30 second, we move fast, or we're a whole note, we're, you know, have a slower sense of time, and, but we can all, we can make this whole symphony, and... We are instruments, <laughs> marching in a common band. But, 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 you know, just like in the developments of music, where you get all kinds of dissonance, we are at a time where we have to figure out how, how to turn all this dissonance into music. And I don't have the answer, but I th we, we just have to somehow. And maybe just making a little music around ourselves every day is, is how we do it. Well, I, I want to be part of the symphony that you're writing. So. <laughs> So thank you. <laughs>